This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and feeling I remember shaking actually I was like almost dizzy and I walked along the walls to get to you know how you crawl along the walls to get to the bathroom and I went to the loo and I, I washed my hands and sink and looked in the mirror and I said remember this 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 is what it feels like when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. So if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out when an episode lands. Absolutely, you have to be in the know. Now to this week's episode. In this week's episode, we meet an entrepreneur and innovator who's been through more than her fair share of challenge and trauma, yet she's found a way to forge her own unique path. We're talking about the irrepressible Dr. Catherine Ball. Catherine, or Kath, grew up in a pretty poor single-parent household in an industrial town in the UK. Unlike her peers, she was determined to go to university, where she studied environmental protection. She then even went on to complete a PhD, a process she now describes as torturous. Needing to pay off her student debt, Her path then took her into the corporate world, where she worked with a number of engineering consultancies in the UK and then in Australia. And just as Kath was being recognised as a leader in her space, receiving the Queensland Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award in 2015, her company merged with a competitor and she, to her surprise, was made redundant. It was this shocking jolt that led her to start her first company and led her to build on her existing experience working with drones. Since then, she's been recognised as a true thought leader in emerging technologies, having been awarded many accolades in Australia, including the AFR Women of Influence and Top 25 Women in Robotics lists, both in 2016. In this episode, you'll learn how Kath's carved out her unique path as an entrepreneur, and it really is unique and fits her like a glove. How she manages her time involved with 10 different projects, plus having a young toddler and another one on the way. How drones will change our lives, and how you need to think about your career in a world of AI, robotics, and cybersecurity. So, without further ado, enjoy this episode with the witty and inspiring Dr. Kath Ball. 
Dr. Catherine Ball. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. It's so great to have you on the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And of course, great title, one of my favorite Queen songs ever. Um, so yeah, great, great to be here. Thanks. No, we're excited to to learn more about the very fascinating work you're doing these days and to hear about your career journey. And in fact, we typically start these conversations by asking our guests, you know, how do you describe briefly to people what you do these days? <laughs> Crumbs. 30 seconds or less. Here it goes. I am working on a number of different startups and businesses where I'm trying to empower the community with regard to new technologies, help startups actually have social heart to what they're doing and enable women to see themselves in roles that they wouldn't traditionally have seen themselves. Wow, fantastic. Have you practiced that? Because that's no, awesome. Did that sound good? I don't even know what just came out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and you talked about all the different roles women play. And I think we should say for listeners now that you're multitasking and juggling with a vengeance today because you we can hear your little boy Nathaniel in the background. That's right. Yes. Yes. He's my backing singer today. <laughs> Currently distracted with my wonderful friend Matilde at the moment. So yeah, no, it's one of these working parent life things, isn't it? But um, one of the things I really enjoy about being independent is that my husband and I co-parent, you know, we both work fully flex on the businesses. We both work from home. So all of those decisions that I thought that I was going to have to make that I wasn't certain about how I was going to make them in the traditional corporate life, I've managed to skirt around to a certain extent, which I'm just really grateful for. That flexibility you get when you sort of work for yourself and, and kind of create the portfolio, which it sounds like it's a really diverse portfolio. And just to give our listeners a sneak peek and taste, you know, Catherine is like so immersed in the world of drones. And I know we're going to have some fascinating conversations about that, but clearly some other things as well. But we'd like to go right back to the beginning now. And obviously, we can hear a bit of a British accent there. Where did you grow it's up? It's a great really? accent. Yeah. It's a great yeah. accent to have. I performed my own personal Brexit in 2010 when I moved over to Australia. I'm now a citizen. So I'm trying to become more of a twang. But whenever I go back to the UK, everyone thinks I'm Australian. And then when I get back here, it's like, oh, you're so much more British since you've been away. So there's I something. Know about getting your ear in there yeah do you notice oh yeah you, do, you just don't fit anywhere do you it's no. sort of like you know you you can't fit into the UK because they think you're Australian and you can't fit here because they because they think you're fully British exactly so yeah it's I had a great upbringing in a small town called Nuneaton which is an industrial town in the West Midlands yeah and then I moved to the northeast of England to do bachelor's and PhD and then had a few jobs around London way and then moved out to Australia so yeah, when I say home, it's really weird. I don't know what to say when I'm when I'm home is now Brisbane, to be honest, yeah. psychologically. But that's not to denigrate the wonderful upbringing I had in the UK. So you talked about your studies, you know, if we still kind of wind that clock back. What did you study? It was from, from memory around environmental science and statistics and things. So what led you there? I'm a greenie. Well, I suppose, you know, when I was a kid, environmental protection was close to my heart. David Attenborough was my third parent, as a lot of us in the UK have David Attenborough as a third parent. I just remember one of my earliest memories was actually the famine in Ethiopia in 1984. So Live Aid and all that kind of stuff were very much my when I was five or six years old, you know, when you're first starting to form those very first memories that you carry through life with you. So I think I was quite affected by this idea that environmental degradation led to misery and poverty and famine and and also in loving biodiversity and nature. And so so I was torn between studying medicine because my grades were good. And so I was looking either at medical school or at environmental science. And I went to Zambia on my gap year when I was 18, working with orphans and vulnerable children. And I realized we've got enough people training up as medics that I wanted to do something different. And environmental protection was my first degree. It was called BSc Honours in Environmental Protection. I had a year in industry 
in Thailand, where we look at a new banana species, which we managed to find one and register, which was great. PhD was more reductionist, as most PhDs are quite specialist. I was looking at how bacteria fought with each other inside the soil, going all the way from looking at planet Earth as a whole, all the way down to looking at literally very small, tiny dust size amounts of soil and, and working out what's happening at that level that could actually affect planetary processes in a whole. So yeah, wow. I've been all the way down to microns and all the way up to galaxies. Wow. You sound like you're somebody who's incredibly curious and has a really huge learning appetite. How do you work out what you're going to go to next? Oh, do you know what? This is probably one of my biggest weaknesses is that I get bored really quickly. And I think it's one of the things about people that are, have this entrepreneurial side to them is that if you get bored really quickly, but you're trying to create a startup or a business, you can't get bored really quickly. Like you have to be in it with each of them for at least two years. I mean, each, each startup really takes two years to take hold and even some are more like 20 years to be an overnight success. And I've noticed this amongst a lot of my other successful or getting there successful type people in that you have to have a diverse portfolio of what you're doing otherwise you'll get bored really quickly and really easily but I actually also needed that corporate learning to actually learn how a business operates I have like 10 entities that I sit over the top of either whole owner or part owner and I have never been to a business school yeah I've never had an MBA but I've learned everything on the job yeah I don't know if I quite answered your question there but getting bored really easily is a huge problem for me so this is why I have to have that diverse approach different projects, whether it be, you know, consulting to Royal Flying Doctor Service, you know, in a morning, and then I'm mentoring someone at lunchtime. And then I'm working on the RTO that I've just invested in, in the afternoon. And in between all of that, I get to play with my baby and hang out with my husband and go for nice walks in Brisbane and have a nice coffee in a nice coffee shop and get that real work life balance around it. But yeah, I need difference otherwise yeah. I would just stagnate yeah and how do you manage though 10 different entities because that just sounds like you could run the risk of not doing anything well just to play devil's advocate wow I <laughs> I would have a year ago completely agreed with you but I have a few secrets that I've learned over the last 12 months we I thought you might <laughs> uh, especially since having a child I mean working parents for me I always when I was at a corporate world I always used to keep both fathers and mothers who may have been taking parental leave. I always kept them on bids that were going out for work that if we won, it would be there when they came back because the best time managers that I've ever met are working parents. You stop feeding the small stuff. You don't feed the trolls and you stop feeding the small stuff and you start focusing on the core things that you need to actually achieve. I'm still guilty of disappearing down the rabbit hole of Instagram every now and then. I've taken the Facebook app off of my phone so I have to access it through my laptop, which means I limit how much time I'm on there because I'm doing other things. I've actually just this week achieved inbox zero. Wow. Yeah. There's a number of ways I did that. One of which is having a great EA, part-time EA. She's down in Melbourne. Kate, she's fantastic. And without her, I think I would probably suffer. But when I get an email in where I have to do something, instead of leaving it in my inbox as a thing that I just keep checking four or five or six and I double or triple or you know quadruple handle it, I literally send it to her and it's in a to-do list that I don't need to look at again. Or I archive it or I file it in a place where it needs to be. And that has allowed me some really great headspace to actually crack on with some of the creative work that I've been trying to do. And so the idea here is to not be drowned by weapons of mass distraction. And an email, when I look at an email, I reframe it now. An email coming in is basically someone else telling me what to do with my time. And so I will not be told what to do with my time. Having a control over my email, bear in mind, I'm used to sitting with a thousand emails or 500 emails and I'd sit there and on a Friday night, I'd say to Jeremy, my husband, oh my gosh, I've got like 817 emails that I have to deal with. 
And it was just always such an energy sucker. And so I think in the last 12 months, I've really identified energy suckers and I've just cut them out completely. So I won't meet people for a coffee for them to pick my brains. Here are my hourly rates. Here are my half day rates. Here are my workshop rates. If you want to know what's in my brain, that is how you access it. If they don't want to pay for my time, then thank you for not wasting any more of my time. And it's taken me a long time to get there. I used to think, oh, my gosh, you know, I want to be really helpful. I want to be out there in the community. People that are getting paid a nice full time salary that want your time for free, they're fine. They're still getting paid. You're not. And so it's it's literally I've had to cut out a lot of the soft and fuzzies that I would normally do to really because eventually a lot of those things would come to nothing anyway. Right. I've had to just be much better at filtering and much better at prioritizing task management. We have to be quite strict with ourselves. I've noticed that particularly women that I love very dearly and I've been very guilty of this. We give of ourselves far too much sometimes I think and it's not about being less caring it's about making sure you know that you put your own oxygen mask on first and you can't fill other people's bowls from an empty bowl you know so it's a matter of prioritizing time and I think I never prioritized it for me but now I've got a baby I prioritize it for him and that's another thing about me is that I'm not very good at prioritizing me or negotiating for me but I could negotiate for you till the cows come home and I'll negotiate for my son till the cows come home so yeah, it's been a mindset shift. So it sounds like, you know, you've got some really strong boundaries in place, as well as having had that mind mindset shift in terms of doing things for your son rather than doing things for you, which I think is a fantastic way to really focus your energy. How do you practically manage your time in a week, though? What do you actually do? Mm, okay, so a Monday and a Friday, I keep meeting free. So Mondays and Fridays for me is for me to actually do physical work without being interrupted by anything. I tend to have Zoom calls or Skype calls peppered throughout the day. I tend to have meetings either in my business partner's office or state government or at a client's office. And that really ebbs and flows depending on the stage of the project. So I also recently told my EA no meetings before midday. So no calls or meetings before midday unless they're international. So if it's the US, obviously, I'll speak to them first thing in the morning. And if it's the UK, I'll speak to them last thing at night. But other than that, there's certain windows that I've had to ring fence and protect. So I actually get work done and don't just constantly be involved in communications. But I I think even people in the corporate world, you know, they sometimes think that they don't have very much power or control over their time. But actually, if they were to sit down and really, you know, put some boundaries in place, they probably do have much more than they think. Let's talk about the beginning of your career a bit, because you actually started working, I think, in sort of more engineering focused firms. Is that right? Yes. My first job out of the PhD was actually RPS Water, which is a water consulting company that was based down in Exeter in Devon. And I moved from the northeast to the southwest without knowing a soul. Eventually, I moved over to London. The global financial crisis hit. Then I moved moved with RPS to Perth in Western Australia to work on the Gorgon Marine Monitoring Program, where I was data manager. So they wanted people that could handle numbers and see patterns and work on economic translational values of various things. So unfortunately, the big problem with PhD students is you become very good at a number of different things. And then when you take a step into the corporate world, you become very reductionist and you lose some of those skills that you had. You know, the freedom of thought, the ability to challenge methodology, the ability to challenge how things are done. All that does not sit well inside a management hierarchical structure in an engineering consultancy I'll tell you that for nothing and then in WA I I moved around for the work basically I followed projects so when one consultancy was losing their projects other consultancies were hiring for their projects and so I jumped and skipped between a few and ended up at URS which no longer exists now it's been bought but what was URS? 
URS is an engineering consulting company. I was contract manager, you see. So then I'd gone from statistician to data manager to project manager to contract manager. I had quite a broad skill set from my degree and my PhD, which allowed me to become a bit of a generalist inside mm. some of these project offices. So I wasn't just a turtle expert, you know, or I wasn't just a fish expert. I was pretty much, show me the data, let's look for the patterns, show me the legal forms, let's look for the risks, which was quite unique skill set, I think, at the time. So I ended up as a contract manager for Wheatstone Project for URS. RS, which then allowed us to do the drone trials, which then got me into drones. I then got pulled over to Brisbane to run the drone business line nationally, then went on to get all the Telstra awards and stuff. URS was then merged with another company, and I was basically chopped within two weeks of winning Queensland Businesswoman of the Year. You were chopped? Yeah, I was made redundant. You're kidding? No. It was um, a difficult merger. At the time, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and feeling, I remember it shaking, actually, I was like almost dizzy. And I walked along the walls to get to, you know how you crawl along the walls to get to the bathroom. And I went to the loo and I, I washed my hands in the sink and looked in the mirror. And I said, remember this, this, this is what it feels like when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. I consider it to be my liberation. I think if I'd continued any longer inside a traditional engineering consultancy corporate world, I would have gone absolutely bonkers. I was literally normally the only woman around the table. I tried to work to lift women inside the business. There were just hardly any of us. It was a brick wall that I was bashing my head against. So do I wish that I'd stayed and done X, Y and Z? No, actually, I, I look at it and it was painful at the time. But it was a birthing really for me to recognise. And, and it, this t is really hard to do. I had to recognize what I actually wanted. And when I undo all of my career, all the way back to 2008, when I'd finished my PhD, why did I get a job in an environmental consultancy? And the answer was because I was in debt up to my eyeballs and I had to find a job. And so I did not enter that path out of choice. I entered that path out of necessity. Why did I move to Australia when I knew nobody in Perth? Because I was up to my eyeballs in PhD debt because I come from a low socioeconomic background. People like me aren't supposed to go to university. We're not supposed to have PhDs. That's not what my peers did. It's not what my family history was. I was breaking through walls and ceilings or whatever kind of euphemisms people want to use. And it was painful and it took its toll. And so for me, I had to go where there was work rather than do what I wanted to do. And so yeah. I still had a wonderful group of men and women who were massive supporters of my ideas and me as a person and what it was that I could actually achieve. And I thought I could walk straight back into a corporate job now in any of these other companies. Do I want to do that? And the answer was no. And so that for me was a huge watershed moment and very difficult. So the end of 2015 was running the gauntlet of, can I do this? And I was like, well, if I don't try now, I never will. How did you get yourself through that process in terms of what did you say to yourself or do to help you get through the fear of failure or, you know, can you do this? Oh, I've been through worse in my life, let's put it that way. I was reading a really interesting article once, and it was all about the personality traits of a female CEO. And typically, a female, a successful female CEO has, in their lifetime, 
something that is pretty nasty, something that's horrible that's happened to them, something horrible in their family background, something they've had to fight against, they've had to fight their way through something. And I think that that's true when I look at a lot of the successful female CEOs that I know, but it may, it makes you go one way or the other. You either become this, I've been beaten up by this, therefore everybody else has to get beaten up by this. Or what I'd like to think is the majority of us say, okay, I was beaten up by that, but I'm going to open up gates. I'm going to throw down fishing nets. I'm going to throw down ladders. I'm going to drag these women up with me. And that's kind of where I went. So when I looked at what I was facing, was it the worst thing that I've ever had to do or face in my life? No, it was not. It was not at all. And finally, I had money in the bank. I had a loving husband. I had an opportunity to actually just stop and take stock for a couple of months and work out what it was that I wanted to do. And I have this big thing of you have to feel the fear and do it anyway. And if you're feeling fear, it means you give two hoots. And if you give two hoots, it means you're going to do something with it. Couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. That feeling the fear and pushing through it anyway is just so critical, isn't it? And, you know, just out of curiosity, and please don't answer this if you don't want to, but what was the worst thing that happened to you in your life? Oh, Oh, well, there's a few things without wanting to get the violins out. You know, my parents divorced when I was very young. That was not a pleasant experience. I had a um, domestic violence experience with a former boyfriend, you know, when I was in my mid-20s. Yes, yeah, so and my PhD was torture. They call it permanent head damage for a reason, PhD. Mm-hmm. That I look at and I actually sometimes I don't know how I actually got through my PhD. And there's something about when you've gone through trauma or you've gone through issues is that you you learn how to recognize what really matters and what doesn't. And so my husband and I made a joint decision. Let's try this, see if it works for a year. If we give it a year and we're broke and it doesn't work and we were on the rice and lentils there for a while, then I can always go back and get another job. And if that didn't work, we could always move to the UK and I could go and get a job. You know, there were always options open to us. So I never felt like I had no choice in what I, what I was able to do. And I think that is the key for me. Amazing. Well, and I think, as you say, all those traumas and experiences that aren't so great really do keep things into perspective. I am intrigued and would love for you to paint a picture for us and our listeners about you spend a lot of time working with drones. What is the impact of how life or you know our day-to-day lives might be different if you're an average person in five or 10 years' times thanks to drones? Okay. So, This year, we're already going to have passenger drone trials starting off in Australia. And in fact, they've already been going around for a while. So getting into a drone to drive you to work or take you to work or take you to a hotel is going to be real in the next three years. A flight. And obviously, a drone is a flying Drones can be anything. Yeah, anything. So drones can crawl. They can swim. They can walk. They can fly. They can be the size of your thumbnail. They can be the International Space Station. They can be the size of a Boeing 747. Anything that does not have a pilot directly sat in there and flying it or crawling it or riding it or driving it so autonomous uh, vehicles or automated vehicles are effectively drone cars okay so anything that doesn't have a person in there directly flying it at the sticks in the machine is effectively a drone it's really cutting edge and very what they call exponential which just means it's evolving at a rate that's beyond our capability to even keep up from business model point of view we'll have them everywhere we've already got them delivering things like um but you can get a burrito in canberra in seven minutes if you want one Mm via drone but where this little trial area was for google wing google x came out to queensland back in 2012 and delivered a dog snacks i mean australia is known in the world as the trial and test site of choice we've had legislation here since 2002 so 17 years and counting as of today other countries like the us still don't even have the regulations that we have so a lot of these international multinational companies actually come here to trial 
And how much of your time do you spend on this particular kind of topic across, you know, numerous projects and the like? Well, I mean, World of Drones Congress, which was my baby that I, I created three years ago. It's our third year this year. We're the largest in the Asia Pac region. That's taken up a lot of my time recently just because I've traveled to other conferences and things. World of Drones Education is a spin-off that I created, which is all free resources for teachers and educators that want to introduce drones as a concept and also as a practical element in the STEM classroom, science, technology, engineering, and maths. And so that for me, I'd say is probably about half of my time. And the consulting, the bits and bobs, that kind of ebbs and flows a bit. Can I just ask you, you know, because you're spending your life thinking about this, what is the sort of use case that you are most excited about in terms of drones? Well, you know, for me, the emergency aspects, right? So the the life-saving aspects are huge. So the fact we've got lifesavers now across the country being trained up to send out flotation devices when swimmers are in trouble is huge. The shark detection aspect, very, very interesting. Mm. The bushfire monitoring So how to get people out of a bushfire situation. We can even use drones now. There's an unmanned helicopter system from a big defence company. I mean, it can lift two tonne. So it could actually be the water dumpers on the fire. So we could actually have emergency situations where we're not having to put human beings at risk whilst we're trying to save lives. And that, for me, is incredibly interesting. You know, clearly there are some amazing things that they're going to be able to do that we can't even think of now. But I guess many people also sort of have a bit of a fear about drones, don't they? So I imagine many people sort of think of looking up into the sky and there's all these black buzzy things going on. (laughs) I mean, is that something that is likely to be a reality or is that just a complete misnomer? Well, I think if it does start happening, what it's going to be is it's going to be over our roads, probably, or there'll be corridors. There won't just be a free for all. There's this thing called UTM, which is yet another acronym, but it stands for unmanned traffic management. So it's the idea of having a full 3D model of a city or an area where you want to have drones flying, and they will fly in corridors for the safety of other airspace users. So on our airspace maps, we will have permanent air corridors where drones should be flying. They've got enough smarts on them now that they actually know where they are in a 3D environment from a number of different mechanisms. And so that is how we're going to have drones. They're not going to start in our cities. They're going to start in our rural and regional areas and they're going to encroach into our cities as the proof of concept and the risk reduction becomes you know, a reality. I think it's super exciting. And really, when you think about how much of a game changer it could be to regional areas, particularly, it's, it's fascinating. And Kath, you know, you're known for just kind of being finger on the pulse of what's happening in a number of different like technology fields, particularly this area of drones. What's your advice to listeners who have a passion, be it drones or some other tech related thing about how they can stay abreast of these elements and perhaps get themselves involved in the way things are evolving pretty quickly in the overall scheme of things? Oh, it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I try and keep my toe in it. Obviously, with World of Drones Congress, I go out and I literally meet and see and and look at companies and how they're developing. So, of course, I'll put a plug in there for World of Drones Congress here in Brisbane. Next year, we'll have drones and robotics and we're actually starting to create Tech Week. And so I actually want to have an Australian Tech Week. That's a perfect segue, in fact, on Tech Week. You know, when we think about the future of work, you know, how do you think our listeners' careers might be different based on all these things in, say, 10 or so years' time? Well, there's a great book for people to go and get called Future Fit by a wonderful woman called Andrea Clark. And she and I have worked on a number of projects in the past. The biggest thing for me, especially people who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s, we are Gen X, Y, right? So we still understand the relationship between a pencil and a cassette tape. We know if the world goes (laughs) wrong tomorrow and we lose all of our digital assets, we still know how to work without digital assets. You know, it wouldn't be very easy, but we still know how to do things. We're not digital natives. 
And yet women, particularly in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we are at the first lot that are at risk of this automation aspect of the fourth industrial revolution. But what people don't realize, the fourth industrial revolution, you can have a good Google of it. The World Economic Forum came up with that. And it's great when economists tell us how the world is going to be. But the fifth industrial revolution is upon us. That's due to start in 2020. Now, the the reason why this is important, particularly for women, is the idea that you can take skill sets and actually retrain people in technologies such as cybersecurity are lost on a lot of people. So if you were a corporate, for example, and to fire someone or make someone redundant and then to hire someone new, if you can find them with the skill sets that you want, that will cost you, let's say, $150,000. To retrain a person that's been with your company for 10 or 20 years who may be in a non-technical role, retrain them in something like cybersecurity, you're looking at twenty dollars to $30,000. Why yeah. would you get rid of someone when you could retrain someone? So I actually think in terms of our future employment, this is less about job titles, it's less about qualifications, and it's more about inherent skill sets and aptitude. So we have a number of different organizations in Australia who are now doing aptitude testing to see who is really good at, say, a cybersecurity role. And they can identify this from high schoolers all the way through to military veterans, for example. That, for me, I think is key. So this is not necessarily to do with, oh, I don't have a degree. Who cares? My mum did law as a mature student. My father never got a degree. They both went on to have wonderful careers in the things that they enjoyed. You can retrain and, and, and relearn some of these skills. And I think this is where universities are finally cracking on in that they actually want to have a never graduate student and they want you to be a student forever. They want you to constantly be dipping back into expertise, cutting edge things, retraining, constantly imbibing from the fountain of knowledge. And I couldn't agree with that more as long as it's affordable. And as long as it's open to everybody in society. Yeah, that concept of lifelong learning, given how fast things are changing with automation and the like, but particularly for women, it feels like we still have such an imbalance in the number of female graduates uh, or even studying tech and STEM related subjects. What are your thoughts on how women can think about technology in a way that appeals and works for them? For me, I think... The idea that we have a leaky pipeline is a massive misnomer. We don't have a leaky pipeline. There is no pipeline. I don't agree with the idea of pipelines. My analogy I prefer is the London Underground or an underground metro tube network of some kind in that you might have been trained to be on the circle line all your life, but it doesn't mean you can't get off and get on the district line. It doesn't mean you can't learn how to access the Victoria line or the Northern line or the Jubilee line. Like You can go and try different lines in life, um, but we need to enable people to attempt to retrain or try these new things The internet, I think, will be a saviour to a certain extent. You can now access courses online in ways that you could never do when I was a student. You can access free courses from MIT online if you want to learn about some of these things. There's an Australian startup called Kaggle, K-A-G-G-L-E, that were recently bought by Google a year or so ago. They actually have free cybersecurity and coding courses for you to do online that they do as part of their corporate social responsibility. But if someone's listening to this and going, oh, God, cybersecurity has got nothing to do with me. I would say, well, you're very wrong for a start. Every single job is going to have a cybersecurity aspect to it. Every single job is going to have a digital aspect to it. And you can sit there for three hours on Facebook or you can watch Netflix for three hours or you can go online and find some courses to do that will cost you 100 bucks here or free or 20 bucks there. There's so many ways to look for things yourself. That's a great call to action. It really is. Let's say you do all these courses and you train yourself up. What's your advice in terms of actually then trying to 
move roles or move jobs or industries? Because that's often what people want to do mid-career. Network. Oh my gosh. Your network is your net worth, right? So you can go and apply for a hundred jobs, but if you know somebody that you've met at an event or you've been connected with via someone in your network, that is just such the easiest way into looking. I, I got to the point when I was never actually applying for jobs, I was headhunted into them. And that was so refreshing because applying for jobs is so soul destroying. Join the associations, right? So if you want to get into engineering, join Engineers Australia. If you want to work in cybersecurity, look at some of the associations and some of the federal government meetings and get-togethers and meetups and various groups where you can go along and meet people that are working in those industries. Couldn't agree with you more. Network is absolutely gold. Thinking back to maybe, you know, I suspect you were in corporate at this time, but if you think back when you were 30, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self today? (laughs) I was 30 when I moved to Australia. So I was 30 on the back of the global financial crisis and having to do that leap across the world, just to try and keep my head above water. If I was to speak to myself now, I'd probably say, yeah, good decision. Things will work out. You know, things will work out. If you stay true to who you are, eventually, it may have taken me 10 extra years, but things will work out to where you want them to be. And just to be kind to yourself more than anything else. I think we're more critical of ourselves than anyone else could ever be critical of us. And I think we're the first to judge ourselves. So maybe just to be a bit kinder to yourself is probably a good thing. I was in a bit of a state when I had to leave the UK and come to Australia because it wasn't something that I particularly wanted to do. My mother still refers to it as one of the worst days of her life, taking me to Heathrow and putting me on that plane. Big moments, those, aren't they? And you're right about the the inner critic for sure. Yeah. Well, fantastic advice to yourself. Be kind to yourself. So, Kath, it's been such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing all of your amazing journey and your great wisdom that you've picked up along the way. Now, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and the work that you do, where would they go? Oh, well, people can find me at drcatherineball.com and they can also find me on LinkedIn and connect with me on there. I like people connecting with me on LinkedIn. I like to see what people are up to. Yeah, they're probably the best ways to get hold of me and see what I'm up to. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll also put the link to the conference and any other things that you think that we should link to. So there's the social startup, which was my new business that's coming online soon that people might be interested to learn more about. And there's some free assets for people to get in there and have a look at as well if they're interested in starting their own business. So that's the socialstartdashup.com. Great. And also, I think you've got those free courses that you talked about too. Yeah, worldofdroneseducation.com. So if you're a teacher or an educator and you'd like to learn more about how to get drones into your school, you can access everything for free there from the education point of view. So there's a form you can fill out on worldofdroneseducation.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Good luck with all of these ventures. And we can't wait to see where drones go and where you go, because we're pretty sure that you're going to be at, at the head of that, leading that charge. Best of luck. Thank you. And you have to let me know when you both get your hands on a drone, please, and start flying. We need more women flying drones. There's not enough of us. You need to get a drone for Christmas, please. We'll oh, take no, up the mantle. Declare that excuse. She just loves new toys. <laughs> I do. I, I love photography. So um, that's, uh, that's where I'm going to go with the drones. For sure. Perfect. Well, thank you, Kath. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. It's been good fun. Wow, what a story Kath has. It's really clear her life and career has had its real ups and downs, but I just love how honest she is about those things and how coming through those experiences has given her the strength and resilience to carve out such a unique career, perfectly suited to her. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really great to hear how she's flourishing now, isn't it? And wasn't it cute having uh, the baby in the background? Nathaniel, yeah, that's hilarious. Life with small children. 
The thing that blew me away was how she brought the world of drones to life. You know, I really hadn't thought about all the ways drones could make our life better. Yeah, it was so interesting because I'd actually always pictured drones as, you know, small flying things. So it was really good to have Clath clarify they can include driverless vehicles and a whole host of other types of unmanned vehicles and craft. It was totally fascinating stuff, but then I am a bit of a geek. No, no, I, me too. I was fascinated. So, well, that's this episode done and dusted. Our next episode is with Geordie Fu, a world-renowned architect, interior designer, fashion designer and artist. Yes, Geordie is a true polymath. It should be fascinating indeed. She sure is. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, why not share it with someone you think might also enjoy it? Yes, we would very much appreciate that. Thank you in advance and ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.